Do you think Donald Trump was a threat to democracy? Why, yes. Yes, I do, Brett Baer of Fox News. Thanks for asking. By the way, so does Donald Trump's former Secretary of Defense. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No name. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN in Palinville, New York on WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites, or most of them anyway. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around Swell-ish fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Desi Doyen, there is apparently a movie out right now called Everything Everywhere All at Once. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there is. Kind of feels like uh, real life right now. Don't it, though? I mean, I don't actually know what the movie's about other than I think it's a sci-fi action movie or something, something. Uh, that folks I hear is very good. Yep. So I hope to see it. But yes, it is that title that seems to really get at the zeitgeist of the moment right now. It keeps at least it's been going through my head all day today as I was trying to figure out what to cover uh, as everything seems to be unraveling in various ways all at once. Yes. This uh, fantastic buffet, shall we say. Well, not too much. Not so fantastic, but a buffet nonetheless, I got to say. So really, let me just pick a few of those things uh, before we get to my guest momentarily uh, for an update on the challenge to Marjorie Taylor Greene's candidacy in Georgia based on her violation of the insurrectionist disqualification clause of the U.S. Constitution as well as several other challenges against insurrectionist candidates in North Carolina and Arizona, as there has been court action in all of those cases over the past several days, led by freespeechforpeople.org, whose president, John Bonifaz, joins us once again momentarily for an update to explain them all, some of which, by the way, are insane and not in a good way. So he'll be here for that momentarily. But speaking of insane, also not in a good way, 
Wildfires are now simply insane and out of control in the great state of New Mexico, where we have a number of affiliates. So please be careful out there if yes, you're listening. Please. Apparently, this is thanks to unprecedented wind and heat conditions for this time of year that have reportedly been unyielding and, yes, unprecedented, according to officials, with red flag warnings for sometimes days in a row over the past several weeks. Uh, just what they are calling unprecedented weather conditions for some reason or another, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's um, it's everything all at once. There and you go. on top of that, we've got climate change as well. Yes, we do. Uh, this uh, weather, for some reason, is threatening now thousands of homes and other structures in, uh, in, New in the land of enchantment, I, as I recall, is their nickname. So, Des, you'll have more on that in our latest Green News report and much more, hopefully, later this hour. Some kind of surprising breaking news out of Congress today, though, of, of some note, at least. Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, one of the last remaining Democrats who describes himself as pro-life, announced on Tuesday he intends to vote for the Women's Health Protection Act, which would enshrine abortion rights in federal law. In a statement on Tuesday, Casey said, quote, in the nearly three months since the Senate last voted unsuccessfully, I will add, on the Women's Health Protection Act, the circumstances, he says, around the entire debate on abortion have on abortion have changed. He says in light of the leaked Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and subsequent reports that Republicans in the U.S. House and Senate will introduce legislation to enact a nationwide six-week ban on abortion. The real question of the moment is, do you support a categorical ban on abortion? He says, during my time in public office, I have never voted for, nor do I support such a ban, he added. This is big news, actually, uh, that Bob Casey, uh, Bob Casey and Joe Manchin are the two Democrats who uh, have traditionally opposed uh, abortion rights. Uh, but now Bob Casey apparently is changing, at least when it comes to the Women's Health Protection Act. The bill is coming up for a vote in the U.S. Senate on Wednesday, but it appears to have still little to no. Actually, I'll just say I'll go ahead and say it. No chance of passing, at least right now, if only because it will be subject to a Republican filibuster requiring 60 votes, thanks to that undemocratic rule. And, of course, it likely lacks the support of the other Democratic opponent of freedom and choice, Senator Joe Manchin. It, nonetheless, is a major shift for the Pennsylvania senator, and I think it demonstrates, well, how quickly the debate over abortion is now changing now that the right to it appears to be nearing its demise potentially in all 50 states if the Republicans have their way. Yeah, and I think uh, Bob Casey coming forward and actually saying, hey, given what I know now with new information, I am changing my position, whereas you find Democratic Senator Joe Manchin still stuck in the same mud he was before. Yeah, well, that's where he lives, in the mud. But now that, you know, I, I think a lot of people, now that, you know, a lot of Republicans are already talking about what is next, you know, including banning birth control and more banning uh, abortion in all 50 states. Suddenly these, you know, previously abstract 
concerns are becoming very real indeed and changing not only the longtime positions of some elected officials, but I think voters as well. In a year that so-called conventional wisdom previously had Democrats losing badly in both chambers of Congress in this year's midterms, I have noted over and over again, these are not conventional times. I've been trying to note that, you know, it still could happen. Democrats could take a shellacking this November. But making that presumption at this point, at least for those of us who realize that what is on the ballot this November is actually democracy itself versus authoritarianism, you know, not realizing that and assuming, oh, well, Democrats are going to lose. Nothing we could do about it. That seems like suicide for the nation itself at this point. New polling has been coming out in recent days reflecting the concerns of Americans following that leaked draft of the majority opinion from the GOP's stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court last week that will, within the next month or two, unless something changes between now and the time that decision is released, it will overturn 50 years of established constitutional freedoms in this country for women's health care, and the right to choose to have an abortion. And some of that new polling is, I hope, enlightening. For example, this one from YouGov, taken in the three days following the leak of that opinion by Sam Alito. Uh, it finds by a 51 to 31 majority, including majorities of both Democrats and independents, that Americans do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. We've seen other polling that has even higher numbers in favor of Roe, but it was this part of the survey that actually caught my eye. The survey of more than 1,500 U.S. adults conducted from May 3 to May 6 found that registered voters initially preferred a generic Democrat, 44 percent, over a generic Republican, 39 percent. That's a five percentage that's five percentage points when asked how they would vote in their own district if the congressional election were being held today. The so-called generic congressional uh, ballot. Well, for now, anyway, Democrats are winning by five points, 44 to 39 when the question is asked that way, which seems encouraging for those of us fighting to preserve democracy over autocracy especially as we've been hearing for months now that, you know, Democrats are set to be overrun by a red wave in the U.S. House. Well, maybe not, according to this polling anyway. But guess what? When voters were asked to choose in the same poll instead between a pro-choice Democrat and a pro-life Republican on the generic ballot, well, GOP support fell to 31 percent, from 39 percent to 31 percent, while Democratic support held steady, more than doubling the gap between the two candidates to 13 percentage points. All they have to say is they're a pro-choice Democrat. Well, that seems noteworthy. I hope the Democrats are paying attention. <laughs> Not entirely clear that they are, but one hopes that, yes, that they do recognize that broadly Americans support women having the right to make choices about their own bodies. And when they put that in their candidacy, when they put that up front, that doubles the support for Democrats uh, as compared to Republicans. 
So that's interesting. There's Point being, there's a lot we don't know between now and November about how all this is going to play out, including comments now playing across much of the media of Donald Trump's own Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, on the menace that even he thought Donald Trump was to our republic and to our democracy itself. Here was Mark Esper, uh, who's been doing the rounds. He's got a new book out. Uh, here he was, though, on Fox News, of all places, with Brett Baer on Special Report. Do you think Donald Trump was a threat to democracy? I think that uh, given the events of January 6th, given how he has undermined the election results, he incited people to come to D.C., stirred them up that morning and failed to call them off. To me, that threatens our democracy. So, yes. I think the answer would what else can you conclude, Brett? Yes, Donald Trump was a threat to our democracy, according to Donald Trump's own secretary of defense on Donald Trump's own news network, Fox News, speaking to Brett Baer. What will Fox News viewers make of that? That, you know, his own Trump's own final Senate approved sec def was a secret anti-Trumper? Uh, what, that he was a rhino? Maybe. I don't know. I'm sure that's what Donald Trump is likely already calling him. But as everything happening everywhere all at once <laughs> right now, it would be a mistake to think you know anything about what's going to happen between now and November with everything changing literally every day. And as horrible as everything seems today, and it definitely is horrible we have got to keep going because things are going to continue to change everything every day between now and November of 2022, much less between now and 2024. So uh, just keep that in mind as all of this horrible news continues to pour out. Yes, must keep uh, going, must keep fighting. When you're fighting for democracy, you don't get to stop. And yeah. That's right. And we got to somehow we got to turn this nation around. And I, I don't know how, I'll be honest, but a, a lot of it has to do with voting. I can tell you that. And I know we don't do it by checking out and giving up as inviting as that certainly feels uh, sometimes these days. But speaking of January 6th and yes, threats to democracy and the unknowns between here and November and of never giving up especially of never giving up. Constitutional law expert John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People joins us next to explain some disturbing court rulings and plans by the group to not give up in the challenges to the constitutional eligibility to serve in office of insurrectionists Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, two congressmen and a secretary of state candidate in Arizona, in the 2022 midterms, and yes, Donald Trump himself in 2024. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind Well, it's not just an old sweet song 
that keeps Georgia on my mind. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last Friday, an administrative law judge in Georgia overseeing a hearing under oath with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of the state's 14th Congressional District about two weeks earlier, recommended to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that the Congresswoman be allowed to remain on this year's midterm ballot. Her ability to do so had been challenged by several voters in her 14th congressional district in Georgia based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the so-called Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, which bars from elected office those who have previously taken an oath of office as a member of Congress or executive officer, etc., before then having, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. During the questioning by the challengers, whose legal effort was led by the nonpartisan nonprofit good governance group freespeechforpeople.org, Green equivocated. She appeared to lie, and she stated over and over again that she did not recall things that she had said or written or done or tweeted, even when those things were on videotape. Here's just a few examples from that hearing under oath before Georgia Administrative Law Judge Charles Boudreau in late April. I don't remember tweeting that. I don't recall. So I don't recall. I don't remember. I don't remember, but that's what this says. I don't recall. You don't you don't recall one way or the other. I don't recall. <laughs> I do not recall that now. I don't I don't recall. I don't recall. I I have no idea. I don't think so. I don't recall. You, okay. So you're not denying it, you're just saying you don't recall. I don't recall. She didn't recall. She didn't even recall saying, by the way, that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had committed treason. A crime, as Green noted on videotape at the time she said it, before she was in Congress when she was distributing a petition to remove Pelosi from office for the crime of treason. And that resulted in this exchange in the courtroom. In fact, you think that Speaker Pelosi is a traitor to the country, right? Uh, you're, I'm not answering that question. It's speculation. It's you, you've, you've said that, haven't you, Ms. Green, that she's a traitor to the country? No, I haven't said that. Okay. Put up Plaintiff's Exhibit 5, please. Which oh, no, wait. Hold on now. I believe by not upholding the, uh, securing the border, that that violates her oath of office. Oh, wait now. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, said exactly that in January of 2019. She's a traitor to our country. She's guilty of treason. She took an oath to protect American citizens and uphold our laws. And she gives aid and comfort to our enemies. And by our law, representatives and senators can be kicked out and no longer serve in our government. And it's a, it's a crime punishable by death is what treason is now it's interesting that she wanted to remove pelosi from office under very similar reasoning to that found in section three of the 14th amendment that green's voter challengers believe uh, should mean that she should be removed from office 
for, you know, engaging in insurrection or giving aid and comfort to our enemies. But last Friday, Judge Boudreau recommended to Georgia's Secretary of State that Marjorie Taylor Greene be allowed to run for re-election this year, finding that the only evidence presented by plaintiffs that Greene may have quote, engaged in insurrection or gave, quote, aid and comfort to enemies of the U.S. government after having first taken the oath of office for her first term in Congress on January 3, 2021, was the statement that she made during an interview on Newsmax on January 5, 2021, the day before the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, when Green stated, quote, this is our 1776 moment. Nonetheless, as, as uh, Judge Boudreau found in his ruling, Green, quote, testified that she did not know that 1776 was being used by some of the persons who invaded the Capitol as a code word for a violent attempt to stop the Congress from proceeding with certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election. So who knew? Who knew that that's what 1776 moment meant, I guess? As Boudreaux wrote, quote, she testified that her references to 1776 or this is our 1776 moment in the Newsmax interview were references to her efforts to lawfully challenge electoral votes on January 6, 2021. And her calls for supporters to come to Washington, D.C., she asserted, were intended to invite them to attend peaceful demonstrations and not meant to induce them to engage in violent behavior. Unquote. But that seems at odds with the rest of the evidence presented to the judge by the plaintiff's challengers, such as this previous statement by Green from a video that she posted on social media. This is an important time in our history. We can't allow this just to just to be gone, you know, just to let it go. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president. You can't allow it to transfer power peacefully and let Joe Biden become our president for reasons that are not exactly clear to me. But hopefully my guest can clear up shortly. Judge Boudreau did not even reference that statement in his 19 page decision recommending to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger that Green not be disqualified from the ballot. Why did that not come up? I don't know. For his part, after receiving the judge's ruling, Secretary Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, who has the final decision under Georgia law as to ballot eligibility, found in a brief one-page statement published on the very same day the judge released his, uh, his own uh, findings, a finding from the secretary that did not even reference the word insurrection, by the way, but only that, quote, Typical candidate challenges raise questions as to candidates' residency or whether they have paid all of their taxes. This challenge is different. In this case, challengers assert that Representative Green's political statements and actions disqualify her from office. That is rightfully a question for voters of Georgia's 14th Congressional District, said Raffensperger, not referencing the word insurrection in any way. Therefore, he ruled that, quote, Judge Boudreau issued his initial decision on May 6, 2022, finding that challengers have failed to prove their case by preponderance of the evidence and that respondent is qualified to be a candidate for representative for Georgia's 14th Congressional District. 
Judge Boudreaux's initial decision and findings of fact and conclusions of law are hereby adopted, wrote the secretary. So that's that. Green will be on the ballot this year. Maybe, but not just yet. In a statement in response to the judge's ruling and Raffensperger's rubber stamp approval of it, Free free Speech for People issued a statement on Friday declaring, quote, this decision betrays the fundamental purpose of the 14th Amendment's insurrection disqualification clause and gives a pass to political violence as a tool for disrupting and overturning free and fair elections. Before they went on to announce that they would be appealing the decision to the Georgia Supreme Court. Joining us once again today to explain what happened and where all of this may still go is constitutional law expert John Bonifaz, president and co-founder of freespeechforpeople.org, which is representing challengers not only against Green's candidacy in Georgia, but also against her fellow alleged insurrectionist, Congressman Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina as well as Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and Arizona State Rep. Mark Fincham, the Trump-endorsed Republican who is running to be the GOP candidate for Secretary of State in Arizona this year. John Bonifaz, welcome back, and thank you for joining us again, yet again, to help us make sense of all of this on the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Good to be with you again. Uh, before we get to Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, another disturbing ruling was handed down on Monday uh, from the Arizona Supreme Court this week, concurring with a lower state court judge that the challengers in Arizona to those three men I mentioned have no right to challenge them under the 14th Amendment because, quote, no private right of action exists under the United States Constitution or Arizona law to challenge candidates under the 14th Amendment and that, quote, the Constitution reserves the determination of the qualifications of members of Congress exclusively to the U.S. House of Representatives. Can you uh, can you help me unpack that Arizona Supreme Court ruling? Yes, the, the Arizona Supreme Court ruling is incredibly absurd. It, it basically relies on the state statutes language that says the challenges must be based upon qualifications as prescribed by law, and it then decides, as the trial court judge did, that the insurrection disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment Mm -hmm. is a legal proscription from holding office. In other words, the qualifications of age and residency and citizenship, those can be challenged under the state law, but that's prescribed by law, but a disqualification, as in the insurrection's disqualification clause, that is not something that voters can use the state challenge law to challenge eligibility for candidates. That's solely for the purview of Congress to decide. And there is no distinction here between prescribed and proscribed. The same argument that there is a qualification for age uh-huh. is also an argument that there's a disqualification for age, right? So if you're seeking to be on the ballot and you're 14 years old in the state of Arizona uh-huh. running for Congress, you're disqualified based on your age. Uh, but this is how the state Supreme Court basically blocked this proceeding from going forward 
before the trial court in an evidentiary hearing and prevented the voters from even having their opportunity to have their evidence put forward demonstrating that Gosar, Biggs, and Fincham all engaged in the insurrection and are disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. <laughs> so uh, the state could say, no, you're, you're 14, that doesn't qualify for the, uh, under the Constitution to, to go to Congress, but the state cannot decide that you participated in an insurrection. That is left up to Congress to decide unless Congress somehow uh, writes a law. Uh, it, it's... I had trouble. I got to be honest. It was a short ruling. I had trouble understanding what the hell the Arizona Supremes were actually saying. But what I one of the things I took away was and I'm hoping you can help me as a longtime constitutional law expert. Does our federal constitution require that a law actually be made, be written, be passed by Congress in order to enforce stuff that is actually in the Constitution, like 14.3? Or, no. or is it enough that the Constitution, in this case, just seems to bar those who have engaged in rebellion and insurrection from taking office? Right. There, there is no requirement here that Congress pass a law to allow the enforcement of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. On its face, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment speaks for itself. It makes clear that if you've taken an oath of office and you've engaged in insurrection, you're forever barred from holding public office again. Just like the age qualification doesn't need a new congressional statute to have it be enforced. On its face, you have to be 25 years of age to be a member of Congress, at least 25. So this is a fiction that the state Supreme Court has created here of somehow a distinction between that qualification and the qualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, it is a majority of the court. We don't know what the vote was. Mm -hmm. uh, it is also a two-page uh, opinion, three-page if you want to give a few lines on the third page, mm -hmm. uh, on, a, on a very complex uh, matter that had a lot of evidence before the court with respect to the complaint. Uh, but this is how they, this is how they decided this matter is solely based on this made-up distinction between prescribed and proscribed. I, you know, and I don't know the uh, Arizona Supreme Court well enough to call them corrupt, as I am comfortable describing the U.S. Supreme Court. So I'll just say it seems we have some very bad a very bad judicial system in this country. Is there anywhere to go once the in on, on this particular case? Once the Arizona Supreme Court has said no. With respect to the Arizona cases, unfortunately, that is the end of the road for the voter challengers. But it is not, I want to emphasize, the end of the road for the responsibility of the Secretary of State of Arizona to enforce the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Mm. So what they have said is that voters don't have a private right of action mm. under the state challenge law to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. They have not said anything about the Secretary of State having her own ability to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and apply uh -huh. it with respect to any candidate. So from the standpoint of where this could go is that the Secretary of State of Arizona is now, mm -hmm. you know, the focus point uh, on, on whether or not she will uphold Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and ensure that these 
elected officials turned insurrectionists are barred from the ballot. Fascinating. And, of course, the Secretary of State in, in uh, 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 Arizona happens to be a Democrat, though she is also running for governor this year. We will watch uh, that closely. Uh, Meanwhile, moving to Georgia, John Bonifaz and the decision by Judge Charles uh, Charles Boudreau, who is apparently also a corporate tax attorney, by the way, and of uh, Secretary of State Brand Raffensperger, their decision to allow Marjorie Taylor Greene on the ballot this year. There were several items that jumped out at me that seemed, let's say, odd. First, if I am reading this correctly, the judge did recognize that it is not necessary to be convicted or charged with insurrection. To be challenged as having engaged in one under Section 3 of the uh, 14th Amendment, if I read that correctly. Yes. So let's start with your uh, general response to the uh, judge's decision. It seemed that he, he focused on, well, she took office, office on January 3, 2021, for the first time, and that was just days before the January 6th insurrection, so was only interested in evidence that, seemed to take place after she was sworn into office. Let me get your general response, and, and i got some specifics about all of this. Well, first, I do think, just to highlight your point, he, he, he addressed the arguments that Green's attorneys made trying to dismiss this matter out of hand before even considering the evidence on the arguments, for example, that you had to have somehow a conviction before you could be disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We mm-hmm. won on, on that argument. Uh, on the argument that the qualifications clause for members of Congress, that Congress can only decide who shall be seated, that that somehow negates any ability for the state to regulate who gets on its ballot running for Congress. He also did not agree with that. Uh, and he did not say, I, I know Green's attorneys wanted him to, say this, he did not find that January 6th was not an insurrection. He didn't say it was. He said this wasn't a matter for him to decide. But it's important that, you know, they, they lost on those points, that the questions around uh, whether or not this was an insurrection, whether or not Congress only has the authority to determine who gets seated, and whether there's a conviction required before enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. They didn't win on any of those grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, on the evidence point, uh, you know, I think it is a big mistake that he made, this judge made, not to find that there were uh, statements, tweets, videos issued Mm -hmm. leading up to her time of taking oath that were probative. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily standing alone Mm -hmm. actions that constituted a disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but they were probative of what she would then eventually do once mm-hmm. she took the oath. So the 1776 Malman statement, that is, is seen in the context of everything that came before it, before mm-hmm. she took the oath. And that video that you played where she says we can't allow power to transfer peacefully, that, of course, happened after the election, before she was sworn in, um, you know, but nevertheless is very probative yeah. of the fact she did not support the peaceful transfer of power. And his dismissal of that evidence is error in our view and, and is a basis for our appeal. Uh, that was what really jumped out at me. I got to tell you, he so he says, you know, he's looking again at this period after January 3 when she was, or as of and after January 3 when she was sworn in, 
because under the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you have to have already taken the oath of office and then engaged in insurrection. He finds, quote, one ambiguous statement on January 5, 2021, which appears to be the only direct post-oath evidence supporting Challenger's case, is simply not enough. He was referring to her comments on Newsmax that this is our 1776 moment. But he did say elsewhere in the ruling that, you know, statements she made before being sworn in could be used to essentially determine her state of mind, you know, during that comment about 1776. And yes, once again, that statement couldn't be clearer. I just want to play it one more time so that people understand Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, go ahead. This is an important time in our history. We can't allow this just to just to be gone, you know, just to let it go. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president. Now, I'm not sure exactly when that statement was made, but it seems it could not be clearer. It sort of seems like a smoking gun that she was supporting a violent insurrection, even if it was before she was sworn in. The fact that the judge did not even reference that, unless I misread it, did not even reference that comment even to dismiss it in some way. It's as if it did not even exist, John. Yes. Yes, very <laughs> problematic. In addition to that is the fact that he treats her as a credible witness. He consistently, throughout the opinion, dealing with the evidence, deals with her answers. and mm -hmm. says, Well, she didn't recall, she couldn't remember. You know, nothing about her being a, a, a witness who was not credible on the stand, under oath, saying she couldn't remember, couldn't recall more than 80 times. And then you add that to the fact that days after her testimony, the revelation of the text she sent, Mark Meadows, former Trump White mm -hmm. House chief of staff, where she did, in fact, advocate that Trump impose martial law mm -hmm. to try to stay in power. That was precisely part of the questioning that she was asked under oath. And she said, I don't remember, I don't recall. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't believable then that she couldn't have remembered ever advocating that a former a president impose martial law to stay in power. But then you had the, the evidence just 72 hours later that, in fact, she did send that very kind of text. And he refuses to rule on our motion to supplement the record to include that text message. So that as well is part of the appeal, that, that his decision to fail to apply the voluntary aid standard of engage and to not recognize the evidence that supported that standard of engage that we presented, the overwhelming mm -hmm. evidence, is a basis for the appeal, but I, I want to add uh, one other major basis yeah. for the appeal, which is people need to know the Georgia Supreme Court in 2000 stated this, that under Georgia law, the, quote, entire burden is placed upon the candidate to affirmatively establish their eligibility for office. That's what the law is, according to the state Supreme Court. And days before this hearing began on mm -hmm. April 22nd, before Judge Boudreau, he shifted the standard. He, he reversed the burden of proof, mm -hmm. and he said it wasn't going to be on the candidate, it was going to be on the challengers, contrary to that state Supreme Court ruling. 
and his reversal of the burden of proof is is bad enough on its own. But then, on top of that, people need to know, he denied our discovery requests leading up to this hearing. He refused to allow us to take Green's deposition, and he refused to enforce any notice of documents that we had issued mm-hmm. seeking all these kinds of materials, including the text message that we were entitled to before the hearing, demonstrating that she reached out to Meadows. He did denied all that discovery. You combine the reversal of the burden of proof and the denial of discovery, mm-hmm. and that is a clear error as well and grounds for appeal. Yeah, I mean, this seems like uh, just administrative and, and legal errors, never mind what the uh, political makeup of the Georgia Supreme Court actually is. I don't know what it is. If I had to guess, I would say it's to the right. I don't know. But it seems just based on these errors, they ought to uh, uh, somehow reverse the decision. Well, or well to be call clear, no, we're not, we're, our first stop is the Fulton County Superior Court. Ah, okay. And, and that's going to be before one judge, mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, if we prevail, I'm sure Green's attorneys will appeal to the state Supreme Court, but we're, we're headed to the Fulton County ah. Superior Court. Ah, okay. Well, good. Uh, do we have a, a hearing date set for that, of course, because the... We don't. I mean, the appeal is getting filed, and then there will be a hearing date soon set after that. And, uh, but, you know, look, we are not, on our end, giving up in any way. We, the uh, evidence is overwhelming that Marjorie Taylor Greene engaged in insurrection, that she's disqualified, and our clients want us to proceed, the voters in her district who are courageous to stand up on this, and they have been done a disjustice, uh, injustice rather, by Judge Boudreau and by the Secretary of State, and, and they deserve uh, to have their evidence heard in a fair, impartial way, and that, that's where we're going with the Fulton County Superior Court appeal. And in, in these challenges, even if the uh, cases, even if the elections move forward, are you still able to challenge the various decisions, even if, you know, she's elected in her primary and then goes on to the general ballot? Are you able to continue those challenges anyway? Well, yes. I mean, so if she's not removed from the upcoming primary ballot, that doesn't mean that there's not another decision to be made about gotcha. whether she gets on the general election ballot. Okay. And this challenge will proceed, uh, even if she's already won the primary, to deal with her presence on the general election ballot. <laughs> this is uh, an extraordinary, well, I mean, it's an extraordinary time that uh, we would even invoke this. Uh, but some of these rulings are amazing. I want to jump in the few minutes we have left here. To North Carolina, uh, it's one of the other cases that is still out there as of now. We discussed uh, on this show uh, last week this rather amazing federal appeals court hearing that the uh, challenge uh, against Rep. Madison Cawthorn under his eligibility under 14.3. Briefly, a federal Trump-appointed judge in North Carolina there determined that when Congress passed the Amnesty Act of 1872, it not only waived the uh, 14th Amendment uh, to allow members of the Confederacy to run for office, but it also gave amnesty to all future insurrectionists for all time, and that in any event, only Congress may challenge the eligibility of members of Congress, similar to what we heard in uh, from the uh, Arizona court. Now, you guys appealed that decision to a three-judge federal panel, and in a hearing last week, this remarkable exchange took place. Judge James Wynn asked Cawthorn's defense attorney, quote, let's say you want to run for office at 12 years old or something like that. The state can't do anything. You've got to wait until Congress says they can't run. 
And then uh, Cawthorn's attorney, James Bopp, who's also Marjorie Taylor Greene's attorney and Donald Trump's attorney, by the way, replied, I can't help what the Constitution says. So he's saying in federal court that that's right. A 12 year old can run for Congress, even though it doesn't meet the constitutional requirement for Congress. But it's only Congress who can do anything about it. States can't do anything about it. That was the argument actually made in federal court a week or so ago. A Trump appointed judge on that three judge panel seemed to agree. John Bonifaz, do you have any sense of what the third judge thought and, and when a ruling might be due from that court in that case? I think we're going to hear soon from that U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit panel. I think they, all three of them, even the Trump appointee, were troubled with the way the district court judge handled this matter, where he ruled solely on the 1872 Amnesty Act and ruled that it applied to Madison Cawthorn as well 150 years later. But I don't think there's any way that you can make sense out of the claim that a 12-year-old can appear on a state ballot and it will just be up for Congress to decide. <laughs> By that same token, a foreign national can appear on a state ballot mm. in North Carolina. Yeah. Vladimir Putin could run for Congress mm-hmm. now under that thinking and appear in, in, on the ballot in North Carolina, and there would be no basis to remove him from the ballot. He would just have to be able to on the ballot, people could vote for him, and, and then Congress would decide whether to seat him. That, that's just a preposterous, and it's not what the Constitution says. Uh, and I think my, my hope is that this panel will recognize that and will agree that the voters deserve to have their challenge heard before the State Board of Elections yeah. on the overwhelming evidence that Madison Cawthorn is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Well, yeah, it's preposterous, and yet there was a Trump judge, a Trump-appointed judge on that panel who seemed to agree. Judge James Wynn, I believe, is an Obama appointee. I'm not sure who the third judge is. Do you have any idea who appointed the third judge, John? Yes, Joe Biden. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we won't have a preposterous decision from that appeals court. Uh, that one, I guess, we'll wait until we get to the U.S. Supremes, perhaps. John Boniface... You know, one thing we have learned from folks on the far right is that they never give up. Despite having adverse rulings in courts, they seem to find new forums. They continue their challenges. What you guys are doing, uh, despite uh, various defeats here and there, to continue to make these important challenges uh, at the um, freespeechforpeople.org, I think is so important for all of us. And I just want to underscore before I let you go, even if all of these uh, uh, challenges fail, for example, against Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia and Cawthorn in North Carolina, that does not necessarily mean that another person with, say, more evidence of engaging in insurrection or uh, someone who is running for president, not Congress, say Donald Trump in Georgia or North Carolina in 2024, that he could still be challenged under these very same uh, uh, clauses in the Constitution, no? Absolutely, and we intend to bring those challenges. John Bonifaz, God love you, co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org. They are, of course, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization leading in the national fight by challenging big money in politics and corruption at the highest levels of government. 
You can see that on display here for sure. John Bonifaz uh, can be found on the Twitters at John Bonifaz. And you can also look up all of these cases at freespeechforpeople.org. John, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I suspect we will be bothering you again soon, hopefully with some better news as this moves forward. Thank you, Brad. Great to be with you again. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, And, you know, by the way, Des, uh, in addition to being a national nonprofit, nonpartisan group, I think free free speech for people is a national treasure. <laughs> I, I really do. I mean, the fact that they uh, that they get it, they get it that you know you don't just uh, lob one bomb, lose and give up, but you keep finding every possible way to move forward. That is something that, as I mentioned, uh, the right figured out long ago. Yep. And um, yeah, we'll look at their 50 year scheme to overturn yeah. reproductive rights yeah. for women. And they're now moving on to the next thing, which is to overturn every single privacy right that anybody yeah. else who is not a white male Christian gets to enjoy. So, yeah, yeah the tenacity of free speech for people. I, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, talk about not giving up. And, and by the way, they're not even I wouldn't call them a, a, a lefty group. Uh, John Bonifaz actually supported Bill Clinton's. Uh, impeachment years right. ago because so. he's intellectually vigorous in questioning and demanding that people actually follow through with stuff imagine that <laughs> intellectual honesty in today's america go figure all right uh let's take a quick break and we will be back with desi doyan and our latest green news report i'm brad friedman this is the bradcast <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, Des, uh, last, uh, on our previous Green News report, you had uh, this story uh, that the water levels at the uh, reservoirs in the west, like Lake Mead, are so low right now that we're making unprecedented changes to water usage. It's threatening yeah. electricity and everything else out west. But the water level had gotten so low that they actually found a dead body in a barrel in yes. Lake Mead outside Las Vegas? Yes. Yes, indeed they did. And you reported at the time that officials said they wouldn't be surprised if they found more such dead bodies? <laughs> yeah. Well, they found another dead body at Lake Mead. Surprise! Yes. And you know times are, are uh, insane when finding two uh, long decaying dead bodies in a lake is not even the most troubling aspect of that story. <laughs> True. I mean, the fact that we're almost out of water and uh, electricity may be along with it over this summer, which I hear is going to be a hot one. Yeah. Uh, and what's even more troubling, we didn't even have time for that story in our latest <laughs> Green News Report. This fire is moving and it's moving some areas a mile a minute, it's moving quickly. Raging wildfires force new evacuations in New Mexico. Fires in Siberia raging out of control because the Russian military is burning Ukraine instead. Plus, do they impact climate? Yes. Arctic wildfires are causing Arctic ice to melt faster. 
All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We are on the cusp. We're ominously waiting for the big natural disaster, the big crisis that lets them or allows them or encourages them to unfold their ultimate policy agenda, and that is the climate change agenda. Wait a minute. The disaster that we're worried about is the climate change agenda? Not climate change? Oh, Fox, you be you. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desiree, we are barely into the summer, and already the wildfire season out west is burning out of control. Yes, it is. President Biden has issued a major disaster declaration for New Mexico, unlocking federal emergency disaster aid and recovery funding to help the state grapple with an extremely early and intense wildfire outbreak. Driven by excessively dry, hot winds, there are six active wildfires burning across half of the counties in New Mexico. The largest wildfire in the U.S. right now, the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon Complex fire in northern New Mexico, alone has prompted the evacuation of nearly 16,000 homes and destroyed at least 300 structures, including historic buildings that have stood for centuries. And it is barely May. In a press conference, New Mexico's Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham urged residents to please heed evacuation warnings before evacuation routes become impassable. This is the worst possible set of conditions for any fire. I repeat, it's the worst possible set of conditions for this fire. If you're in a mandatory evacuation area, please leave. And buckle up. Forecasters warned Monday that not only does the U.S. Southwest face extremely critical wildfire threat over coming days, but the intense heat wave and high winds are spreading from New Mexico into Texas and the Great Plains. In May? Unseasonably warm temperatures are already straining the Texas power grid, which on Monday set a new record for electricity demand for the month of May, and the notoriously hot Texas summer has not even begun yet. No, brother. Russian Siberia is also seeing a rare outbreak of wildfires in May, an ominous early start to the fire season after last year's record-breaking onslaught. CBC reports that residents in Siberia are firefighting mostly on their own because in Russia, major fires are fought by the military, which is currently bogged down invading Ukraine. Oh, yeah. They're kind of busy right now. University of Ohio professor Jessica McCarty says even worse, soot from Siberia's wildfires lands on Arctic sea ice, absorbing heat and accelerating melting. Think of it as kind of the dark part of smoke, the soot that you can see. When it is emitted in the springtime and early summer, like now, that causes rapid melt of sea ice, which means our sea, more sea ice melts because of our fire um, than is just being caused by the warming of climate change. Hence those feedback loops we've heard so much about. Yes, and a recent United Nations report projected that wildfires are likely to increase in frequency by at least a third by 2050 due to rising global temperatures, more frequent heat waves, and more widespread drought. I think they're likely to increase in frequency by Thursday at this rate. 
But some good news. In Europe, the world's largest floating solar farm, an array the size of four soccer fields, literally floating on a lake, is set to go online in Portugal in July. And while the fossil fuel industry is responsible for causing man-made climate change and lying about it and blocking action on it, there are individual actions that can help cut emissions, like voting for climate hawks who will pass meaningful climate policy. But also, a new study in the journal Nature calculates that if people collectively cut their consumption of beef by about 20 percent, it would help cut deforestation in half and reduce CO2 emissions. By just 20%? Yes. I could do that. And finally, California will become the first state in the U.S. to get approval to feed seaweed to cows. A particular type of red seaweed mixed into conventional cattle feed has been shown to significantly reduce methane emissions from cow burps by up to 50%. Nice. Finally, for much more on all of these cow burping stories, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Now we can blame the cows. Yes, we can. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. And by the way, thanks to our uh, Victoria Parks from our Columbus, Ohio affiliate WGRN for that great song, Blame the Cows. Uh, it's uh, that she, it, yes, yeah. it's on a very funny album called Duh Democracy. Yeah, v- uh, from Duh. Victrola and the Dust Bunnies. Yes. Always glad when we have the excuse to play it. Uh, thanks, Vicky. All right, we have to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, of course, to my guest today, John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People, and to all of you people for spending a portion <laughs> of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or want to hear it again or share it with a friend or a family member or an enemy, you can always download it for free at bradblog.com. All of which is made thanks only to listeners like you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We couldn't do this without you. Seriously, thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Now we can-